Coming up, I'm going to tell you how top achievers find career-changing opportunities and then the latest data on why so many Americans aren't happy with their work hours. It's very interesting. We'll break it down. Let's go. Helping you make more money and experience more meaning. That's my aim. Let's get to it, shall we? So what can we learn from the women and men who just always seem to have a knack for finding, accepting great opportunities? You know those people? How many of you know people that if you just look back on their life, as long as you've been in their life, they they always seem to have great opportunities coming their way, taking great opportunities. And 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 and, <laughs> and and you may have thought about them and you kind of said something like, they're just so lucky. They got a horseshoe up the old, right? You know, that's one of the old excuses. You know, oh, they're just so lucky. Oh, man, just everything falls right for them. Might be true about the everything seems to fall their way, but it's not luck. It's not the old horseshoe. It's just not. And some of you overlook what it really is. Some of you think, well, it's obvious you got to have a lot of talent, talented people. They send, they seem to rise to the top. Sometimes I know some very talented people that have lost big time in life. So it's not talent alone. Some of you think, well, you know what? They're very, very hard workers. They they prepare, they practice. I mean, they they just really work on growing themselves. Yeah, that's that's true. But again, not the sole factor. I think it is talent. I think it is preparation, the hustle, the practice, the working on yourself. No question about that. But I will also tell you that it is equal parts connections. What you see as luck, something falling into their lap, I see as a result of intentional connecting. They're top of mind at the right time. They're top of mind all the time. It's one of the two things. I mean, it's just a function of relating, connecting, and building rapport, building credibility, and then letting life just happen. So if you were to pull yourself out of that, connection intentionality and you're never connecting you're, you're you're never adding value to other people you're you're rarely talking to other people you're you're rarely ideating collaborating serving all of those intentional acts of connecting pull yourself out of that nothing's going to come your way because you are out of sight and out of mind so i wrote a book entitled the proximity principle that is a deep dive on how to connect. There it is right there. Oh, pointed the wrong direction. There it is. Oh, right. There it is on the shelf. Oh, I'm so just kidding. That's got you paying attention if you're watching. And in this book, I unpack what the proximity principle is, which it says in order to do what you want to do, you got to be around people that are doing that and in places where that type of work is happening. So it put a priority on two locations or two in moments of focus or areas of focus. That is the right people in the right places. That's all that it means. The right people, 
plus the right places will equal opportunity. In other words, opportunity finds me when I'm around the right people and in the right places. This is just a fact of life. And in the book, we reveal five specific people archetypes to give you an example of the type of people you want to be around. And I want to focus on one of them today, and it's the producer. Now, the producer is not a technical term here. The producer is an archetype. And it simply means a person who is winning in the field that you want to be in. So if you want to be in accounting, you want to be in engineering, you want to be in teaching, you want to be in nursing, the list goes on and on and on. And a producer is someone who is in the field that you want to be in, and they're crushing it. They're ahead of you, and for good reason. Those are the people that you want to spend time around. Now, when you are connecting with a producer, there are, I wrote down three things that you're going to get out of a consistent discipline of connecting with people who are winning in your field. Remember, they're ahead of you, but they are willing to connect with you because somebody connected with them. Remember, they didn't get to where they are on their own. So get over your pride uh, about what you're going to come across or how you're going to look asking them. Listen, if you're humble and you're hungry when you're around them, most producers are going to value that. You don't have to give them anything. You don't have to do anything for them. That's the biggest myth there is out there. Well, Ken, I don't want to connect with somebody who's ahead of me in a profession because I have nothing to offer. You don't have to offer them anything. They were helped. They will help. And I have found that most of the time they're willing to help. If I'm humble, which means I am grateful, I don't act like I've arrived, I am there to learn. And if I am hungry, and that means I'm willing to show them that I will do something with what they've told me, or I will do something with a connection they will make for me. So what are the three things you get away, you get from connecting with the producers of the world, people that are winning in your field? First, you get knowledge, just true insight. Now, not every producer's opinion is equal. So I highly recommend multiple producers get around multiple people get multiple opinions i would liken it to a bucket and i would fill that bucket with advice and then i'd take it home and i'd pour it out on the table like our kids do after halloween night and they see what all they've got right dump the candy on the table and let's separate the nasty candy uh from from the good candy and let's take feedback that way you've got common sense not everybody's feedback is created equal because everybody's feedback is obviously very specific to them so you're going to get some knowledge, some insight, what they think about your path, what they think you should do. Then you're going to get the opportunity to maybe meet more producers because of them. That's the whole goal is to be winsome, to win them over with your humility and your hunger, and they connect you to other producers. Those are more opportunities, excuse me, more connections. And then the third is opportunities. Now, you don't go in asking for an opportunity to work, but you might be surprised how many times a great connection with a producer will turn into an actual job opportunity. Now, you don't go into it expecting it, but I'm telling you it is very possible. And I found that in my journey, I always got insight and knowledge, which was first and foremost. And almost every time I got another connection that they made for me, so they're sending an email, they're texting, they're making the connection happen. And multiple times, not every time, 
I got an opportunity to work in broadcasting as a result of meeting with somebody in the industry. So why do people avoid this? This all makes sense. But before I let you go on this teaching, I want to make sure you understand why people don't do what I'm saying. There's two reasons. You're intimidated to ask to sit with these folks that are very successful, and it's inconvenient. It's intimidating, and it's inconvenient. you got to work. you got to work hard. They're not going to say yes every time. You'll get some no's. Some people will ignore you. There's no question about it. But if you can swallow your pride, be disciplined, you're going to get the opportunity to do it. And listen, when you're humble and you're hungry, you find that they're very helpful. And this could be a breakthrough for you. Get with some producers soon. Hey, if this show is helping you in any way, I would love for you to help us by spreading the word. A lot of shows out there, a lot of noise, and uh, you can help us grow, and we're growing, and I'm thankful for it. Two ways. If you are watching via YouTube, would you subscribe to our channel? And then if you are listening via, uh, very, uh, uh, via your favorite podcast app, uh, give us a follow and a five-star review. Okay, also... Uh, how many of you out there listening and watching right now are in any of these categories of frustration? You feel overworked and underpaid. You have been passed over or you're not getting noticed for that promotion that you want. Um, you know the change you want to make. Maybe it's a side hustle or starting your own business, but you're scared to death. Or you just feel like an imposter as it relates to this thing you want to do. Some of you are just absolutely bored. You feel like you're just stuck. And any of those reasons, if that's you, you need to consider coming to my breakthrough event in four cities, April 20th, Kansas City, May 16th, Chicago, Illinois, May 18th, Atlanta, Georgia, May 23rd, Dallas, Texas. I'll be speaking on the formula to never get stuck again and how you can get unstuck if you're in any of those situations professionally and financially, because they go together. And then we're going to be taking your questions live in the crowd. It's a lot of fun, like the Ken Coleman Show, but just live, and I uh, can't hang up on you. So that's going to be fun. KenColeman.com slash events. KenColeman.com slash events. Okay, very interesting data. Before we get into the data, here's another question. How many of you want to work less hours? No one raise their hands in the control room, please. Uh, how many of you want to work more hours? This is an interesting divide. Oh, we have we have a kiss up. We have a couple kiss ups in the booth. Thank you, Christian, for he wants to work more hours. Well, I'll take care of that. Uh, new study from Pew Research Center. This is a very interesting divide. Do you fall in either category? A quarter of low income workers making less than forty seven thousand dollars a year want to work more hours. Now you flip that, almost a third of middle and high income workers say they work too many hours. Um, are companies gaming the system? Because we hear a lot of news headlines about companies saying we can't find people to hire. And there certainly are a lot of companies that are going, we, we can't find the talent. We're looking to hire people, can't find them. All right, let's get deeper into this. 
why is it that workers making less than $47,000 a year, and it's 25%, so it's not the majority, only 25% of those want to work more hours? Why is that? Well, this should come as no surprise. The bottom 40% of American households spend 100% of their income on housing, food, transportation, and health care. And so you have a lot of low-income workers saying, I want to work more because I absolutely have to. I'm barely making it. Now, why is it when we hear a lot of news that companies are saying we can't find the hourly workers, we can't find them? Where are they? We can't find them. Well, there's a system that may or may not be being gamed. What is the system? If a company employs workers for fewer than 40 hours a week, it means that that worker can be classified as an independent contractor instead of an employee who's entitled to full-time benefits. So employers save a buck, a whole bunch of bucks, if you will, when they can minimize their contribution to the state unemployment insurance funds and dodge workers' comp. So this is not a new phenomenon, but it's absolutely going on. And so that's why you, you will see headlines that seem to be head-scratching. Well, we can't find workers. Well, when they do find them, companies are going, look, I want to I want to keep them below 40 hours a week so that I don't have to spend extra money here. This is the inflation squeeze going on. Now, let's look at middle-income workers, and I think this will surprise some of you, what middle-income means in America. This is between 47,000 to 142,000. Of this bracket, 26% said they want to work fewer hours. For higher income workers making even more than the 142,000, 30% want to cut their hours. So you've got you've got lower class uh, uh, income, lower income, not lower class. I hate that term. Lower income workers saying only a fourth saying, I want to work more. Others are resigned to the fact that this is what it is. This is my life. But many are saying, I want more from my life. I want to work more. Then you've got middle to upper class workers saying, a fourth of them say, I, w- I want to work fewer hours. Now, the middle class workers, they want more hours. Why? Housing, schooling. It's what it boils down to. I want my family and my kids to live in this certain neighborhood or a nicer neighborhood. That makes a lot of sense. I want my kids to have a better schooling situation. In other words, it's about the now and the next. And housing and schooling, as it relates to higher ed, schooling's crazy expensive with tuition blowing through the roof over the last 25 years. 47% 47% of upper income workers, this is this is folks making more than $142,000 a year. 47% say their work is very or extremely central to who they are compared to 36% of lower income workers. So there's some data. I want to go deeper. Why is work so important to people that are making more money? Because of the lifestyle that they desire and the identity that they attach to the paycheck. That's why. Got to keep up with the Joneses. I, I, I want to look 
and I want to feel. Some of it's about what other people think, but some of it's just like, hey, I want to accomplish this. I want to have this kind of house. I want to live this kind of lifestyle. And so that is why I tie so much of my personal life to work. But this is where it gets interesting. 67% of Americans surveyed in March through a Wall Street Journal study said hard work is very important to them. Only 67%. Compare that same question asked in 1998, 83% of Americans said hard work was very important to their life and to the American character. Folks, that ought to scare you. That ought to scare you. What it means is there's been a sizable drop in how Americans view hard work. And it's troubling. It's going down, and it's going to keep going down. Now, why is this? What's at the base of this? Aaron Zittner, Wall Street Journal editor, looked at the data, and they believe that the poll found record pessimism about our children's generation being able to do better than ours, which I think is very, very interesting. You know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm an Xer. So my parents, the boomers, you know, we, we, there's no question Gen X and even the millennials have done much better than previous generations. But all of a sudden, you've got today's current parents. They are concerned that their kids won't be able to do better. I'm going to tie this in. Why? Only 20, 21% of Americans were confident their children's generation would have a better life. It was 64% in 1998. What's changed? A big fancy uh, labor historian from Yale, Jennifer Klein, said, the payoffs of hard work have been insecurity. That's her take. That's a bunch of garbage. I'm going to tell you what it is. For views to change that much in 30 years, it's called 1998 to now, okay? It's about debt. It's student loan debt, and it's credit card debt. These 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 have become the norm. In fact, they've been peddled to the American people. The only way to get ahead is to get a student loan for your kid or for you. So they've lived it. Now they're looking at their kids. They're going, it wasn't better for me. Credit cards have been peddled. They're going, I work crazy hard just to make my debt payments. Folks, the system has lied to you. Now you don't believe in anything. Why well, I'm feeling the 90s all of a sudden here. Exactly. Wow. Very interesting. I didn't know that treatment was going to happen. I like it. I'm going to avoid the uh, head tilt and the uh, shimmy and the shake here behind the desk. Let's go to Elaine, who's joining us now in Lincoln, Nebraska. Elaine, you're on the Ken Coleman Show. Hi, sir. How are you this afternoon? I'm living the dream, Elaine. What's going on? So, reaching out to you because I'm apparently it's a thing, uh, feeling a little bit stuck and kind of curious about what path I should go down. Um, I have taken your get clear career assessment, uh-huh. but I was in my dream job, which was law enforcement for about um, eight years uh, between two different agencies. I'd moved states and started with a new agency 
and it was not a great place in all reality. Um, hmm. It was rife with discrimination. I was like, ah, I'm going to make it work. I'm going to make it work. Um, definitely loyal for way too long. In the end, they attempted to demote me um, from a ranking position. And the reasons that they gave, I was like, I didn't do anything wrong in this situation. Um, and so I filed a, a grievance based off of gender discrimination, um, knowing what men had done at the agency and had been gotten away with. Uh, they told me to refer all future communication with their lawyers. My, I obtained a lawyer. We went through the whole EEOC process. So I can only say so much, but um, the EEOC process found that I had a right to sue. We went to depositions. Um, their lawyers, after um, the head of the agency was deposed, asked us to settle. Um, we settled, but I didn't get a public apology, which was my big sticking point. Um, and we came up with an agreement of what was to be said when I went for interviews in the future. So I've applied, I've interviewed to various agencies. Um, I've given it a few years while I work as a parole officer to, you know, to show that I'm a great employee. Right. Yeah. And everywhere I apply to, it's great. They look at my record. They, they do all that stuff. And they're like, this is awesome. And then they're like, we're going to reach out to the, the old agency. And then all of a sudden it's crickets. And so I'm just stuck because that was my dream job. Um, being parole officer is great, but I kind of feel like I'm not getting anything done. I'm yeah. spinning my wheels. What were you? Uh, what were you doing before? Were Were you in criminal justice as a police officer? Oh, yeah. So I was a uh, I was a police officer. Um, and and are you getting this? Uh, this is from the state you're in now, or is this any? You feel like any state you're in would this follow you? So that's the hard part. I feel like it would. Um, I received multiple different copies of my personnel file. Uh, so I don't know what is my personnel file that anyone receives, um, things that I'd never seen and things like that. Um, but, you know, I also, my partner lives here. He's very well established in his job. He has his house, like he owns his house, things like that. So it's kind of like my life right. is stuck here. Yeah. Um, man, that's really frustrating because you you settled and you effectively won and then they gave you the script that you're supposed to play, and then people are checking up on you, and it's certainly the evidence points to the fact that you're getting blackballed. You know, just kind right. of, yeah. Um, what do you love most about being a police officer? Describe that to me in about 15 seconds. Tell me, and I want you to describe the work itself. What do you love about it? I love being the person to show up to help people having a bad day. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's when I'm saying that and like building into minds and like trying to figure out like how to prove yeah. the point. Like, you know, like the human mind is fascinating. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. And so just finding what it is. Yeah. Well, here's what I'm here's what I'm wondering. Um, and I love what you said. I'd want you to be a little bit more detailed. You know, is it is it a protectionary? You showing up and serving people need help. Is it protectionary? Is it um is it, does it have another facet to it, or is it always in a kind of protective uh, nature? And I'm going somewhere with this. Well, how would you describe uh, it? I think it's in that protective nature. I grew up in one of those homes where law enforcement was common. Uh, and I always remembered, like, they would show up and they would make the things stop. Yeah. You know, and so it was, like, always that relief. Yeah. And then you get to be that, and you get to be the mentor and have yeah. people look up. Yeah. Uh, well, Elaine, here's where I'm going with this. Um, I don't have any specific advice on how to overcome this this past situation, 
is other than to say you're going to have to relationship your way into it to where you get to know key people in these certain law enforcement municipalities and I'm talking like get to know them or you've got a relationship that's mutual and they actually hear the full narrative and all of a sudden the the question marks about you are removed. That's one way. Okay. But I also acknowledge that's frustrating and could take some time. I'm actually going to steer you another direction based on what you said. Given today's environment, if I'm you, I'm writing down even more detail what you just gave me about what you love most about being an officer of the law. I mean, super specific, like journal it out. Okay. And I think in doing so, Elaine, you're going to see a job description for other things where you can protect people. And I'm going to tell you in today's world, where we see people go into schools and shoot children and shoot teachers and houses of worship, having armed officers all over the place. I got to tell you, someone with your background and experience I think private security, and I'm not talking about the security guard that's sitting there at 2 in the morning that we see in all the comedies watching the uh, the warehouse. I'm talking high-end security, protection, stopping evil from happening. I just think there's opportunity there in the private sector. Am I right or okay. am I wrong? I mean, there definitely is. I just think now more than ever, there's a premium. And I think you got to start digging and looking in other places because you know what they they don't they probably don't care about all that internal politics. They're looking for somebody who knows how to protect people, who's highly trained, who cares deeply about protecting others. I would be looking that direction because you are in Nebraska, and that's where all this went down, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, what do you think? You know that world better than I do. Tell me if I'm wrong. I don't mind that I, I, I'm, I'm spitballing here, but that's what I would be doing. I'd be going, wait a second. I can take, I, I can go a whole other direction. I'm not limited to only being on the police force or a sheriff's deputy. I'm not limited to just that. Am I right? Yeah, you're definitely correct. I've thought about um, threat management. I've definitely looked at it. I've, I've been part of um, the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, like. So that makes sense. I guess I've just always been like, well, there's so many agencies out there and they're going to hire me as that security guard sitting on the on the sidelines that doesn't no. really thrill me no. to say it nicely that way. Yeah, I, I don't think you have to limit yourself to that. you got to get out there and connect and make relationships happen. People need to know your story. You get to meet people and the narrative gets out there and all of a sudden you're not Elaine with a, a personnel file that we're not quite sure what's in it because people mistreated you and you stood up and fought for it. By the way, you won. Mm -hmm. You got to take control of the narrative. Do you understand? You've been going about it the normal way, and I get it, but the normal way is not working. And so I would stop with the normal way. I think relationships end around. Let's build relationships to where somebody goes, you know what? We need a great officer, and I know Elaine, she's legit. So there, that's one way, and I think you're working both strategies. But I would also absolutely be looking for opportunities to uh, be in highly sensitive situations where they're needing true security. I mean, like someone who is who is evaluating safety threats and, and, and I mean, you know, investigative work, whatever. There's just something out there. There's I know there is. You got to go find it. But yeah, you, I guess I never looked at it that way. But it's making sense, yes or no? Oh, it is. Come on, Elaine. It is. It definitely is making sense. I know. Uh, I'm saying, come on. 
It's time for you to grab the bull by the horns and wrestle that thing to the ground. Go get it. You, you're very qualified. Yeah. you got to go where the need is great, where they go, thank God Elaine walked in the door. Are right. you kidding me? You have this many years on the force here, here, and here? Are you kidding me? Can you start today? Elaine, you got to change the narrative. And I don't know if it's high-end corporate security. Uh, I don't know if it's involved with the university. Uh, you know, you got you got celebs around there, wealthy people. You've got private institutions. You've got businesses. Uh, and, and we are living in, in the most dangerous time of our lives. We need more Elaine's on duty. Go find you a place where you can stand on that wall. Thank you for the call, Elaine. You've got this. You just got to go find it. Don't move. This is the Ken Coleman Show. Press on. Thanks for listening to The Ken Coleman Show. For more, you can find the show on demand wherever you listen to podcasts and watch the show on YouTube. You can also find Ken across all social media by following at Ken Coleman.